someone captures and has captured all of our news in Australia, broadcast television news. We've been able to search for any news item that talks about superbugs, golden staff, antibiotics. When we did that, surprisingly, we find that year on year, there's probably between 20 or 30 news stories across television. And it's quite uh, evenly spread. But not what you'd say is a major story. Swine flu went from something like 12 mentions in the global news media in 2008 to 190,000 mentions the next year. That's not happening with antibiotic resistance. And we're seeing that in Scandinavia as well, the same kind of flat, flat storytelling. We want to have massive community awareness. Something else needs to happen for that to, to kind of bite in. So my work is, you know, very roughly the kind of social science of infectious disease, the kind of the social responses to that. Um, so how to help individuals and communities adapt, uh, respond to gain access to treatments, to avoid infection, and to understand that all the constraints and barriers and enablers and people to act in a positive way on their health. Welcome to the Monash Arts Researchers Podcast. My name is Mark Davis and I'm an Associate Professor in Sociology in the School of Social Sciences. Um, I'm convener of Sociology and Gender Studies, so I look after those programs. I've got a psych background and then I kind of got involved in HIV actually in the 80s and uh, gay men's community health campaigns and then research on that. I always had an interest in research. And then I went to the UK and did a master's degree and a PhD there on HIV. So, you know, I do all the infections, HIV, hepatitis C, uh, pandemic influenza, and now I'm doing bacteria for the antibiotic resistance. So we had an ARC on pandemic influenza that was came just after the the 2009 swine flu pandemic and in that uh, project we were interested in how the messaging around the expert advice about what to do during the pandemic how people from the general population responded to those messages some of the main things were the blind spots really so it's not as if the public policy was wrong in any sense it was quite simple and it's stood to reason and in fact that's what everyone told us they all agreed or endorsed the advice that was provided but they didn't think it would work that meant that people talked about their immune systems so immunity is sort of implicit in public policy but not explicit it was not in the messaging at all hygiene was there but not look after your immune system in those terms. But everyone said, that, oh, well, that's what you have to do. Um, and it was, it seemed to us that people f had to fall back on their personal 
physical well-being as a way of coping with a virus that they assumed would, would you know more than likely they'd be exposed to so in that situation there was a lot of talk about you know immunity building immunity exposing oneself to your body can learn using complementary medicines and so on there's also lots of gendering so the other thing that public policy never talks about is the fact that when push comes to shove, the people who are taking kids to see the doctor or looking after the family or prompting people to get vac vaccinated, etc., are women. So they're, you know, that's, that's a kind of blind spot that it's not really talked about. Uh, you know, the policy is not gender aware, and the fact that when there's a general message about do you know we've got a pandemic, everyone do something. It's women who are bearing that load because they generally manage health in the domestic sphere. So there was a kind of message of um, look, everything's under control. Be alert, not alarmed. But with pregnant women, people with severe illness were told, you need to take precautions. The messages isolated some people who felt, started to feel a bit helpless that, you know, uh, there wasn't a strong message about uh, kind of collective responsibilities for the more vulnerable. The other thing we noticed, that I noticed, is that people use stories. I've been interested in narrative for some time. Uh, and uh, all of our participants kind of dramatised their experience, told us little stories, referred to stories they'd seen in the media, uh, drew in kind of, you know, made mention of the bigger stories of pandemics. Um, so I started to get very interested in how narrative ideas around pandemics kind of shapes public response or insignificant. <clears throat> the other thing that happened in that period was that health promotion itself discovered narrative. So, you know, we've been trying to use all sorts of health promotion strategies to influence individuals, um, and they never work completely. So we're always looking for the next best thing. Um, and some theorists have turned to something called narrative persuasion so that if you tell a story, the most persua persuasive, emotive story, you can kind of galvanise action. So I'm a little bit, you know, like, maybe, <laughs> maybe not. Uh, why do people think they can influence just by telling a story? Does it influence people? Or, or how do people take, you know, what do they do with that story when they hear it? And that's kind of what I'm interested in now. Because of what we learned about the Pandemics Project, we kind of, I've kind of remodelled this project that's more obviously about media and narrative, and media culture. We're calling it AMR Scapes, so antimicrobial resistance, science, communication and public engagements. And so there are five of us. I'm the lead investigator, so I wrote the project. Uh, very lucky to have got the money and I'm working it's transdisciplinary so very explicitly we're working across social sciences and intermedia 
there's an anthropologist on the team called uh, Andrea Whitaker. She's a professor of anthropology, medical anthropology. She brings a lot of skills around uh, what's called the social life of medicines. Pills and powders and liquids are kind of, uh, they have kind of symbolic meaning. They're not just chemicals. They have sort of magical properties and they have placebo effects. So it's all about the kind of healing, treating process. So she's helping us with that. Uh, and then there's Paul Flowers, and he's a professor of health psychology, and he's based at Glasgow Caledonian University, and we've worked together a long time. We've worked on HIV and pandemic influenza, uh, published a lot together. And so he bring, he's bringing this, all the Scottish data in, all the kind of perspectives that are being generated there, keep, keeping us up to date with shifts in thinking in the UK, around all of this and helping with interpreting the data and planning how to collect it and so on. And he's thinking a lot at the moment about intervention design. So what kind of messages can we give uh, research you know, policy people about um, how to tweak the messaging so it works more effectively with, and give a kind of theoretical reason for why we would say that. And then there are two media people. There's Mia Lindgren. So Mia, uh, Mia is uh, head of school of media, film and journalism. She's very interested in the new media, but particularly around uh, kind of narrative immersion and voice. So I think we're thinking there about podcasting technology as multi-layered. So the World Health Organization has identified podcasting as a leapfrog technology for health because it, you can transmit it onto a mobile, through mobile telephony. It's more uh, uh, able to be reached by less well-off people across the world. You don't need a TV set, you don't need a radio. You can have a mobile phone, phone you can listen to a podcast. So in terms of kind of transmitting messages across social and geographic distance, maybe the podcasting's got something going for it. The other thing is something psychoanalytic. There's something about the voice and the sound that reaches another part of one's experience of storytelling. Um, makes me think a bit about like Laura Mulvey and the noscopophilia, the pleasure of looking, and how that goes back into kind of uh, early experiences in childhood. So, you know, listening to a story as a kid or having it read to you and the kind, of, the kind of place you go when you're immersed in that story. It's interesting to think about podcasting in that way, and people do talk about it like that. They put on their headphones and they kind of, you know, are transported by the story. So we're looking at that with um, Mia. And there's another person called um, Monica Jerf-Pierre, and she's at the University of Gothenburg, but she's also got a part-time position at Monash. And she's a journalism academic. She's written a lot about uh, climate change and kind of uh, public engagement with the science of climate change. And they have a centre for antimicrobial anti resistance research at the University of Gothenburg, so we're kind of uh, linked in there as well. In the Pandemics Project, we didn't 
we weren't funded to analyse media texts. So what we're doing is trying to move from, so what, what is hap happening in public life? What kinds of stories are being told about, about antibiotics? Then the individuals, you know, what media are they using? And then what do they think about the messages that are being given to them, provided to them or they're accessing? And then what, what action do they take? So you know, how do they actually use antibiotics in everyday life? What sort of barriers and enablers help them to use them in a rational way, uh, etc. And then, then going the extra step of actually doing podcasting research with people from the general public, so actually sitting down with them and getting them to tell us their stories uh, and using podcasting to kind of capture <coughs> how people tell their stories and then sitting down with them and saying, well, you know, co-researching the, the process of telling a story. And then Mia Lindgren is going to um, do a radio documentary about our research. So what we're trying to do is move across media, culture, you know, and research media culture and actually produce something that's transformative and invest, you know, investigate it as part of what we're doing. So one of the things we're thinking about the podcasting is not to just go and talk to particular kinds of people, but to look at what we're calling AMR moments. So we might talk to uh, parents who have to treat their kids with uh, ear infection, or a doctor about prescribing something, or you know, not being able to prescribe something because it's not indicated, and what that experience is like. Or so, rather than modelling the kind of population, modelling the AMR as a kind of phenomena with the podcasting. Looking at Australia, so printed and online newspapers, and we've got a little sampling frame, so not everything, but looking at the kind of big circulation broadsheets and then some of the red tops to try and get a social mix. Uh, TV news, um, looking at YouTube videos, but we can talk about that, they're turning out to be a bit boring. Um, and also thinking about Twitter, the Twitter sphere, um, uh, and pulling up all of the public health materials that have been generated. So once a year there's something called uh, International Antibiotics Awareness Week. Uh, places like Australia and New Zealand have, it, have one as part of that national, international campaign. It's in November. And so we're going to be monitoring prospectively how that event is translated into news media activity. Just by looking on TV news, so Australia's very privileged in that, was it Rockefeller Foundation or whoever funds it, but anyway, someone captures and has captured all of our news in Australia, broadcast television news, on a video database called uh, TV News goes back to mid-2007, and America goes much further back. So it's better than Trove, it's really systematic. And so we've been able to search for anything 
any news item across all of the, the broadcasters that talks about superbugs, golden staff, uh, flesh-eating virus, um, MRSA, antibiotics. And when we did that, surprisingly, we find that year on year, there's probably between 20 or 30 news stories across television. And it's quite uh, evenly spread. But not what you'd say is a major story. So in contrast, the pandemic influenza in 2009, and this is a global figure, I can't tell you the Australian figure, so this is newspapers. Uh, swine flu went from something like 12 mentions in the global news media in 2008 to 190,000 mentions the next year. So that's the classic interest spike in time that happens with an event, a global event. That's not happening with antibiotic resistance. Uh, and that's actually very interesting because that means that it's a kind of told story. Uh, and if we are going to use news media to try and engage publics with the changes that need to come about to use antibiotics more rationally, I'm not sure. I don't know how we tell a story that will grab news media that will have impact. When something's new and it's an emergency, it's easy to tell that alert story and get lots of activity and people notice it. Uh, we've been telling the antibiotic resistance story for such a long time, it's like a zombie story. And actually, literally, when you look at uh, the length of those stories, the words, the number of words used, and the kind of um, ritual, the storytelling ritual that they use, it's, it's, it's very repetitive. There's kind of like a genre that's kind of pretty patterned, you know. You see the same images recycled a few years on, you know, across the years, and the same kinds of images being repeated. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's important because that means, you know, if we want to have massive community awareness, uh, something else needs to happen for that to, to kind of bite in. Uh, and we're seeing that in Scandinavia as well, the same kind of flat, flat new storytelling. I mean, I think the cultural theorists help a little bit here, like Sontag and Trichler would say, we've kind of exhausted the metaphorical power of the story. You tell a story too often, it just becomes boring. Maybe we've done that. So it's an interesting anecdote. Uh, Fleming, the guy, one of the guys who found penicillin, he told a story at his Nobel Prize speech, during his speech, because they got the prize for finding penicillin, which has truly transformed medicine since. And he, he tells a little story of a man who misuses his penicillin and infects his wife who dies because the, uh, the bug becomes resistant because he doesn't use his penicillin properly. So back in 1948, they were already saying, watch out, antibiotics, more kind of, there's a kind of downside. <laughs>
And I'm reading histories now across the 50s and 60s and 70s about the regulation of the pharmaceutical industry and antibiotics and resistance was talked about in the 50s. They knew it happened. So we've known about it for a long time. As, you know, that's another element here. It's not a surprise. So, uh, yeah. From the um, Provost's office, from Pauline Nestor, funded to work in Dandenong Hospital with transnational populations. So one of the groups that's showing up serious antibiotic resistant infections are people who travel a lot and not being treated properly or coming back with drugs and being treated twice as much in Australia and not understanding that different drugs do different things etc. So we're looking at those populations and looking at you know, how people think and feel about drug treatments and what they understand, because we don't really know uh, how people are kind of navigating the Australian healthcare system somewhere else. So with my Scottish collaborator, I'm looking at pets and vets, with that Scottish data, because drug resistance also emerges in uh, animals. <clears throat> and you can, your animal can infect you, you can infect your animal. So talking about pet owners, about how they use antibiotics, and what they think about them. And we've spoken to vets about their experiences working with animal owners. And this is small animals, so dogs and cats and rabbits. Um, and that's, it's just, because that's very different. So the people, the kind of relationships people have with the animals. Uh, and the animals, um, are very dependent on their owners for good health care uh, but nevertheless act quite strongly on their owners during the kind of treatment so they might resist it or vomit it or spit it you know there's all sorts of ways in which it becomes quite complicated actually treating an animal and the kind of love for the animal is part of the part of what makes it really complicated. It's very interesting actually, and no one's done this research really. We were scoping uh, for the Scottish Government uh, what to do about, uh, you know, what sort of public education should happen and what it should look like. Um, so one of the things we did is we reviewed any evidence available, so anyone who'd done anything at all empirical evaluating health education campaigns around antibiotic resistance. So there's very weak evidence for what works. So one of the things they're doing in, this, in AMR, in antibiotic resistance, is trying to work in total environments. Uh, and the, out, the, the, the islands in Scotland are pretty self-contained, so you can go into an island and talk to the farmers, the people who live there, the vets, the doctors, everybody actually in the community and find out how to manage AMR in a total community. It's called the One Health Approach. So it's how people are caring for animals both at home and on the farm and, for, you know, and, and human health care. Uh, who comes into that environment, who goes out of it. You can actually then test environments for the presence of antibiotics.
Antibiotics are pretty amazing. The ones we've discovered are from fungus that live in soil. <clears throat> uh, and so uh, fungus has worked out how to live with bacteria in soil by fending off bacteria using these toxins. And we, we found those toxins and we use them in bodies to kill all the bacteria. It's where, you know, in the natural environment, it's kind of more subtle process. Antibiotics are water-soluble. So if you take an antibiotic, you excrete most of it. So we're actually putting these kind of uh, very refined, intense antibiotics back into the biosphere. So you could literally go into a community and look at the pres look for the presence of antibiotics in the water and the kinds of resistant bacteria that are actually emerging in that environment to get a very fine-grained analysis of what what's happening, what the risks are and what could be done. So that's the kind of next frontier really in this kind of research. But you need, you need microbiologists, you need epidemiologists, you need clinicians, a whole range of people. If you're interested in antibiotics, you can come and talk to me. More than happy to chat about any project you might have in mind. Uh, yeah. And I think my job as a supervisor is to help people be realistic and achievable, achieve something, yeah. and then think forward. I think you have to be strategic yeah. and realistic about the project. If you go into it like it's a, your opus, you know, it might not be that. It was a training exercise. So I was pretty pragmatic about what I did. And once I got my PhD, and I taught for a while, and then I got a grant, you know, I've been able to shape my intellectual uh, career as time's gone on. So it's kind of taking, taking on a project that's bite-sized, that's achievable, that's satisfying, but not so overwhelming that, you, you, you know, you lose interest or it becomes too much or... And I think the key thing is to get, find a really good supervisor. You know, find someone really good, available, enthusiastic. And uh, in a sense, it doesn't matter what, that, what their interests are. If they're a really good supervisor, they should be able to supervise you in your project. That's what I think.